Welcome to Tzarech Iyun, a podcast from Yeshivat Oraita. Listen in as two Rebbeim reflect with one another on current events and unpack central Hashkafic questions that affect how they view the world. A forum for diversion perspectives informed by both study and lived experience, these conversations will illuminate a handful of the Shivim Panima Torah and scratch the surface of ideas which may in fact require further exploration. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Tzarech Ian Podcast brought to you by Shivat Oraita. My name is David Silverstein, and today I have on as my guest, Rav Yitzhak Blau, the Rosh Yeshiva of Yeshivat Oraita. This is obviously a very difficult time um, for all the Jewish people. We're sitting here a little over two weeks since the horrific uh, Simchas Torah massacre in uh, southern Israel. And um, I know that many people have reached out to different personalities in Israel, not only to check on how they're doing, but to gain some perspective um, on what's going on, both personally in terms of people living um, uh, day-to-day uh, in Israel right now, and more broadly to start to think about, you know, are there any Torah sources, any other points to our tradition that can help us navigate this extremely difficult time? So I thought um, it would be a good opportunity today to talk to Roblau and discuss sort of these two questions. Number one, personally, in terms of reflecting on, uh, on his experience, on the experience of friends, family uh, currently in Israel, and more broadly to think about how can the Jewish tradition be a source of inspiration for us uh, during this very difficult time. There's a lot of many other topics that we could talk about, and hopefully we'll discuss them over the course of this episode. But I thought I would begin, maybe Roblau, if you could just describe a little bit what life was like for you in Alon Shfut on Shabbos morning of Simchas Torah. I know that I live in Modin, you live in Alon Shfut, very different neighborhoods. I'm curious uh, to hear your perspective. You know, how did you hear about it? What was the energy in the community on, uh, on that horrible day? Okay, I think I'll focus more on my personal response over the last two weeks and not on that morning. I mean, that morning, as for many of us, uh, rumors hit the shoal and... Uh, at some point, uh, Rav Rimon said that uh, this is not just, you know, a terrorist infiltration, it's mamash milchama, like a real war. Uh, but we didn't really know the scope of it till afterward. So it's hard to kind of give my response when we didn't really know what the scope was. But once uh, Yom Tov was over and we realized the kind of numbers we're talking about, both in terms of deaths and in terms of kidnapping, and those numbers have just been going up over the course of the time, so maybe I'll mention uh, two responses, one a little bit sad and one maybe, I don't know about a beat, but a different tone. Uh, one, I think you really see in a small country and like a tightly knit Jewish people, everybody is going to know somebody. If you have an event where 1,400 people are killed and over 200 are taken captive, there is always a connection. Uh, just for me personally, uh, very fine people from uh, Renana named Mark and Debbie Ziering unfortunately lost a child. Uh, I was at the Shiva there, which was very powerful. Uh, and then uh, well-known people in Chinuch you tend to know. Like, I've had kids who went to Naniel, so unfortunately, Rabbi Benny Kalmanzin lost a son who was quite heroic. I mean, he went to the front without even being called. Uh, Rav Tamir Granot, the Rosh Hashiva of Orot Shaul, lost a son. So I think there's a sense of connection. Like, I can't imagine there's anybody in... I, I won't say it. Almost everybody in Israel knows somebody. There's some connection there to loss. So that is a very powerful and sad thing. I'll say one other thing. Like, in a certain sense, I'm glad to be in Israel at this time. Now, obviously, I don't want tragedy to happen. But if you ask me why I made Aliyah, more than anything else was the sense is this is where Jewish history takes place. 
And I always say I want to be on the field and not on the sideline. And Jewish history is both ups and downs. Jewish history is the Six-Day War, and Jewish history is also the Yom Kippur War. And I can't imagine, you know, living in uh, San Francisco when these things are going on. So, again, I don't wish any tragedy on anybody in Am Yisrael. But for me personally, there's a sense of, you know, thank God I'm here. Uh, this is a tremendous story we're part of. And we have some serious uh, difficulties we need to hurdle. And I want to be part of that. It's uh, very interesting. I know for, for myself, you know, one of the differences between Modi'in and Alon Shfud is Alon Shfud is an uh, all-religious yeshuv. Modi'in obviously is a city that has a lot of different types of uh, people, religious, non-religious, etc., so I know for myself, um, that morning, I mean, it was kind of a really crazy experience. Basically, I was waking up, I was going to a minion at 8.30, and I woke up, and I, I heard sort of chaos outside of uh, my window, and the way my house is situated, it's sort of like you can, you know, the, in this Modi, and it's a, land is at a premium, so people sort of, you know, living on top of each other, and I heard chaos out of my window, and one of my neighbors is an army person, so I heard his son say to him in Hebrew that they took control over the police station in Sterot. And I, I didn't know what was going on. And then I started to hear the booms. I heard booms a little earlier in the morning, but booms were in a distance. And then I heard my other neighbor on his roof, actually, and it was really a strange thing, sort of looking and making frantic calls. And he, I heard him talking to his wife and saying, I, can't, I haven't, can't get a hold of Shia. I can't get a hold of Shia. So I, all I know is that, you know, one neighbor of mine's frantically making calls saying, I can't get a hold of Shia. And my other neighbor is saying that they, they took over the police station in Stero. Now, again, at this point, I, I have no idea what's going on. But I said to, I went, came downstairs, I said to my wife, who was already up at this point, I said, something, something serious is going on here. Now, what was interesting in Modi'in is that uh, because you have, you know, the majority of people are not religious, so the non-religious people, I think, saw it as their responsibility to sort of tell everybody else what was going on. So actually, my father, who was visiting from the U.S., was walking to my house to come to shul, and he was stopped by somebody who was uh, not religious and told him, you got to get back in your house. Here's what's going on. So it was a crazy situation because once I found out from my father, and I went to tell everybody else who I knew who hadn't made it to shul yet, it was still early, um, to hear what was going on. And then the whole day, it was this crazy dynamic where basically you had, you know, us hearing bits and pieces of information just from chilonim, um, from non-religious people telling us what's going on. But... No one really understood, as Rebel was alluding to, the magnitude in terms of the numbers. I mean, I have a neighbor, another neighbor, who's a pretty senior police officer. And I saw him, and I said to him, how are you doing? And he started to explain to me. I said, are there harugim? Are there people who are killed? Are there chatufim? Are there people who are held captive? And at this point, we were talking. He said, yeah, there's probably, we don't, no one really knew. People thought maybe two, three, four, five, ten, whatever it was. But no one could imagine um, just the, the, uh, the numbers we're talking about today. So I think for me, you know, I, I agree with what Rebla was saying that one of the things I found really powerful is the extent to which um, there's been so much chesed going on uh, across the communities. And I see in Modin where I live, I mean, every day, you know, with my kids and my family just involves in tons of chesed opportunities to try and bring the people together. But I did feel like on that morning, on uh, Simchas Torah, a little bit of Rav Salvechik's idea of, you know, the covenant of fate. Right? This idea that even though we're different, you know, and even though we may observe, some people may be observant, some people may not be observant, but when it comes to the shared destiny, you know, when it comes to rockets being shot or, you know, people trying to infiltrate southern Israel, there's no difference between uh, any types of Jews, and there you have this sort of shared fate, and the sense of, like, shared responsibility, I think, was something which was really powerful, and I think, you know, if you talk to all right students currently here and just people in Israel right now, I think that's really one of the most meaningful and dominant themes that's sort of coming out is the sense that the Jewish people really can come together um, really help each other. Uh, unfortunately, it, it was 
what, what brought, it out, brought it upon us was this eight Sarah, but I do think it speaks to a larger interconnectedness that the Jewish people feel. Uh, Rebel, I'm curious if you have any specific sort of Torah sources that sort of come to your mind, you know, w- when thinking about this. I mean, obviously, um, there's a lot of sources that a person could pick on. Uh, but I'm curious if you, you know, trying to draw inspiration, trying to draw some sense of comfort, you know, are, are there sources in the tradition that you think, you know, sort of speak to the current moment? Okay, so I am going to quote a Torah source, but I just want to add one little element to the previous question. There was something powerful on the day itself. Uh, we were eating yomt of lunch together with the Waxmans, Rav Chanoch and Michelle Waxman, and our son Sadok and their son Yair were called up to the army in the middle of lunch. So that's not something we're so used to, that uh, you know, two sons at the table have to leave their yomt of meal because they have to go uh, do their job in the army. Okay, now I'll move on to uh, the second question. Uh, Rav David, I think very cogently before, referred to Rav Salvechik's famous Kododido fake. Uh, I totally agree that the covenant of fate and the covenant of destiny are categories that should be extremely powerful for us right now. I would also say Rav Salvechik's first part, I think, is very powerful, where Rav Salvechik famously argues in that essay that we don't try to solve the problem of evil, we ask what is a good response to evil. And uh, I have to admit, Rav Salvechik might even be a little bit one-sided in his presentation of Jewish thought. I think it's hard to deny that many Jewish thinkers did try to give solutions to the problems of evil. But Rav Salvechik was very adamant that's not the approach he wants to uh, go for. And here I would say in two ways in the contemporary situation, I think we should not be uh, busy trying to theologically explain why we're suffering. But I would also say, even on a non-theological level, now is not the time to figure out you know, who's responsible. It is very easy for the left to blame the right and the right to blame the left in this one. I could do it easily in both directions, but it's really not helpful right now. And really the question now is, now that we've confronted evil, uh, what are we gonna do about it? So that Ralph Soloveitchik source comes to mind. One other very powerful thing that people in America may not be aware of, I referenced before Rav Tamir Granot lost a son uh, amazingly enough, the weekend before he lost his son, he published an essay about the conflict in uh, Makari Shon. And he said that the Jewish people have often responded to pogroms and tragedies by creating something positive. Okay, again, obviously we don't want these things to happen, but we respond with a certain uh, building gesture. So for example, he says the uh, pogroms in Kishinev and Ukraine led to a, a flowering of Zionism. People understood that we can't live in the exile anymore. And uh, he says the Churban Bayit Sheni uh, led to a flowering of the Mishnah and Halacha, right? All that happened as a result of the destruction of the Second Beit HaMikdash. So we seem to have a, uh, a good track record in after a catastrophe, after a crisis, responding in a very uh, creative and powerful way. And uh, Rav Tamir suggested that, that that's the way we should think about this also, that he called this a pogrom. And again, it's more of a pogrom if you think about it, because it wasn't really, you know, um, it wasn't like 73, like uh, the Egyptians and the Syrians are fighting the Israeli military, right? They were massacring civilians. That makes it much more pogrom-like and more poignant because it's a pogrom happening in the sovereign state of Israel. And uh, Rav Tamir says that we should now think about, I think Rav David alluded correctly, like the volunteering spirit has been just astounding in terms of producing food for Chayalim and uh, stuff for people who have to be evacuated from their community and uh, bulletproof vests that have come from uh, all kinds of donations. Uh, and of course, for the most part, a greater unity. There's still isolated voices that are looking to blame. But I think the bulk of Am Yisrael is now in a unified front. 
And we should ask them, where could this positive energy go? So I'd say the source that does me is Rev Salvechik. We don't try to explain evil. We try to respond to evil. And we should just think about how we could respond in the most positive way possible. I was coming home uh, the other day from, from uh, Yeshiva, and um, I bumped into a neighbor of mine um, who's, I would say, she's traditional. I think she's Shomer Shabbos. She's not, like, particularly from, but she's, like, definitely a traditional Jew. Very interesting person. And um, we're talking, like, just, like, outside of the building. And uh, she said to me, um, I think this is a punishment from God. So, you know, she knows that I'm involved in, in education and, and uh, you know, I'm a rabbi. So I thought she thought that, like, you know, it'd be interesting dialogue. And uh, I said to her, well, what do you think the source of, of what, what brought upon the punishment? And she said, well, it's because the Jewish people were so divided in the year up until, up until this happened that, you know, basically this is God's attempt to sort of, you know, remind us of uh, you know, our shared destiny, what's ultimately important to bring us together. And um, what was so interesting about it for me, you know, I'm also familiar with that passage in Rav Salvechik. Admittedly, it was written right after the Holocaust, so there may be some sort of historical um, sort of context that's relevant there. But what I found powerful about it is, is you know, I'm often, like you, Rabla, I, I oftentimes really struggle when people point fingers. I think it, it's unfair. I think it's theologically problematic. I think it's halakhically problematic. But what I thought was interesting about her framing was that it blames everybody. In other words, there isn't a sense that, you know, the right is to blame or the left is to blame. There's a sense that the Jewish people are to blame. To give you some context, you know, people out of Israel may not be aware of this, but, you know, on the eve of the Simchas Torah massacre, uh, the dialogue in the country was all about whether or not there was going to be mechitzas at Hakafot Shniot, which are basically the Hakafot that happened on Mosei Simchas Torah across the country because there was a court order against having mechitzas in a public space and there was all this infighting on Yom Kippur, so, I mean, it, we, that, that's a pretty sort of low state to be in. I mean, the Jewish people, you know, can't even agree to have an optional, you know, mechitza, you know, in one place in Tel Aviv or Modi in another place. And I'm not saying definitively that me, you, or my neighbor know what God's motives were. But I, I do think, you know, it, it's hard not to feel on some level that, you know, last year was just so awful in terms of the discourse, you know, that, that sort of dominated Israel. Uh, even though it may not be theologically sort of, we can't say it with definitive confidence, I do think experientially it's hard to sort of feel like, you know, those two things are not in any way connected. Um, I'll just share one Torah source myself that I think is interesting to reference here. Um, you know, uh, the way Shani Mikra works, basically you do one aliyah every day, and then, you know, by the time you get to Shabbos, you fit six, and there are different ways to sort of get to the seventh, but basically... Um, the first uh, Rashi that the Jewish people in the Shnai Mikra world encountered after this massacre was that, you know, the well-known Rashi al-Torah, where Rashi says that, you know, why is God, why does the Torah begin with the narrative section about the creation of the world? Why doesn't it start with the legal sections? After all, after all, the book, the Torah is a book of law. So he says, well, you know, it get, he quotes a Midrash that says that it gives credence to the Jewish people's claim to the land of Israel, that you know, it could be that non-Jews say, that the land of Israel is not theirs, and therefore the Jewish people can say the same God who created the land, created the world, also gave the Jewish people the land of Israel. And, you know, I've been exposed to that Rashi many, many times, and it's always sort of bothered me because how is that in any way a compelling argument? Meaning, what non-Jew is going to be convinced by a reference to a midrash? Right? If you say to a non-Jew, if a non-Jew says to you, "The Jews have no right to the land of Israel," if you tell him, "Well, you know, the midrash says that." Uh, that the same God who created the world gave us the land of Israel, he's just going to deny the validity of the Midrash or of the Torah in general. So what I felt was that actually after many years of seeing this Rashi and then experiencing the horrors of Simchas Torah, I thought I had like an interesting take on what Rashi's getting at. 
Because it's, maybe the message really isn't necessarily for the non-Jews, but it's actually for the Jews, right? And, and you felt this, I think, right afterwards, because you know, all of a sudden there was this narrative going on, and we'll get to this in a second, that you know, the Jews are sort of colonialists, and we don't belong here, we're white Europeans, we really belong elsewhere. And I felt like that Rashi, you know, being there as the first part of the creation story, reminds Jews that you know, we are indigenous people, you know, we do belong here, we do have a historical right here. And I think that reading that Rashi, you know, that first day after the massacre, I think was an important statement of the Torah, right, to sort of remind people reading it that our claim here is, you know, not insignificant. Our claim is really significant, and we shouldn't feel apologetic, and we shouldn't feel like, you know, we're somehow foreign invaders. And I think that, for me, was a really powerful reminder, and I think that linking it to a Torah source is something which I think makes it all that more powerful. Um, there's a lot more to talk about here, obviously, in terms of Torah sources, but I, I thought we would sort of transition for a second to a, a sensitive topic. I think it's a sensitive topic, particularly for people like Yurovlau, who uh, feel some degree, uh, myself as well, feel some connection to the world of the academy. Um, I think, obviously, there are people, many Jewish thinkers and many contemporary Jewish thinkers, who have been deeply dismissive of the academy, who thought that uh, you know, secular wisdom is okay for practical purposes, for studying profession, but humanities are at best a waste of time, or at worst, you know, actually prohibited. And um, I know you allowed somebody who has been, who had argue, has argued passionately about the value of humanities, about the larger Torah Mata project. I think one of the most disappointing things to see um, is the reaction of people on college campuses. I mean, it's hard to even imagine, right, these types of reactions taking place, where you have a Cornell professor talking about feeling exhilarated when he saw Hamas, you know, uh, breaking through uh, the wall on their way to their attacks. And you have all different types of professors making horrific statements. You also have universities who are totally unwilling to even condemn um, Hamas's atrocities, even though they've condemned many, many other things, including the Russian invasion in Ukraine, which they, they rightfully should have. So I think you know, this is quite shocking. And, and I'm curious, I mean, if you have any explanation or any framing uh, for thinking about how can this be? Right? How can this be that institutions of higher learning, right? can't sort of garner moral clarity to be able to make a basic statement, right, which would be openly condemning Hamas murders, irrespective of where you are on the political, political spectrum. Okay, so I would say, I think it should shake our faith in these higher uh, institutions of learning, and not necessarily shake our faith in the humanities. Meaning, uh, I think uh, Dostoevsky's novels remain as powerful as they always were, and so too, uh, you know, Wordsworth's poetry. But it may be that uh, we should really rethink if we want to experience these things today in the context of Harvard or Princeton or Columbia or Stanford. And I would go a step further. I think what's at stake here is be deeper than anti-Semitism. I know the classic Jewish reaction would be, oh, look how anti-Semitic they are, which certainly has truth to it. But I think if we think about the intellectual roots of some of these uh, institutions, there's actually a deeper problem. It's deeper than anti-Semitism. And uh, I would suggest it starts as follows, that there's a certain ideology. You know, I, I read an interesting essay this week that said that some of the problem here is that the, this talk about racism always being structural and how it moves away from the moral responsibility of individuals, because you're not talking about individual anti-Semitism, you're talking about the structure. Now, there is some truth to it. There are people in society, groups that have more power than others. But the person who wrote this essay was arguing, but then you're stuck. Because that's how you really get stuck, because you decide that the marginalized can't be morally at fault. 
because the structure of society is working against, you know, blacks, is working against gays, is working against women. And then they get a complete moral exemption from criticism because they're always focusing on the structure of society, of those in power. But life is also about how individuals behave. And uh, I think it, I thought it was a, gr a great insight. And then all of a sudden, right, if you have, you know, uh, a black professor at Cornell or an Arab professor at Columbia who says horrendous things, but uh, they can't be at fault because the, the minorities can't be at fault. We're stuck in structural racism. So that, I thought, might be a, a larger point about the academy. And something else that I've written about recently, uh, some of you may know that uh, I was upset that uh, the YU English department had kind of jumped off, for lack of, I'm sorry, for lack of a better term, jumped on the woke bandwagon, that it was more important now to have novels written by trans people than to have great novels from the canon. And then the canon is criticized of, it's just dead white males. So uh, what can you do? You know, the educated people for most of human history were the dead white males. They wrote the great books. I'd rather read great books than try to score political points. And uh, so I think we have an ideology here where things have just gone off, right, both morally and intellectually. It's all about, again, overcoming structural racism and giving minorities a voice, which, again, in and of itself is a good thing, but when it becomes dominant, like, other moral and intellectual needs are just totally uh, nullified. So, again, I certainly think the anti-Semitic theme is important, but in some ways my critique is deeper. I think we really have to wonder if someone's getting a liberal arts education in Harvard, if they're really getting a decent education... And there might be an irony that going to a lesser school sometimes, if it has a different atmosphere and uh, like a particularly good professor or two, might be the way to go. So I would say I've, my faith in the humanities hasn't been shaken up so much as my faith in the institutions of higher learning. Like I wonder if our community really should be so dedicated or viewed as such a great success that we got kids into Ivy League schools. Maybe that's just not the place to be right now. I'm reminded, actually, of, uh, of a really interesting source uh, of the Dora V. Uh, the Dora V is of Shmuel Glasser. Um, and he was an interesting personality. I mean, he had a very interesting commentary, um, an introduction to Masech HaKulun, where he lays out sort of his uh, view of the halachic development. But he, he's somebody who's living in a time where he thinks that, you know, sort of like um, the larger intellectual climate of the world is evolving. And he thinks that, you know, we'll be able to sort of look to the larger world be able to have a shared language of ethics, of morals, of sort of what makes a human a human. And uh, he has this line where he'll say things like, you know, well, Col Bardea, like anybody who's sort of, you know, thoughtful or engaged, right, would know X is sort of morally problematic. And he sort of lives in this world. Now, he didn't live that long ago, right? He lived 100 years ago or so. So, you know, he lives in this world where he thinks that, you know, the world is evolving and evolving in a good way and ideas are evolving and we'll be able to sort of create um, a shared dialogue uh, with the broader world in terms of trying to figure out what is the source of, of, of morality. And what's amazing about this, if you sort of move forward, you know, to 100 years where we are now, so, I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm not necessarily saying that he was wrong in his time, but certainly his, you know, his, his prediction for the future was totally off, right? That now you look to those places, the Col Bardea, right, the places that, that sort of symbolize intellectual advancement, and they have such a hard time even articulating, you know, opposition to the horrific acts going on, um, you know, by Hamas in southern Israel. So that raises a larger question. Here, I probably disagree with you a little bit. I, I actually do think that you're, you're, much, you're much less likely to see uh, professors from the math department 
or from uh, the physics department making these types of claims. Uh, now, I can't prove this conclusively, and I haven't done an exhaustive study, but I, I do think that there, is, there may be something going on here in the culture of the humanities which is problematic. In other words, it may not have been a problem, let's say, for example, when you know, um, great classics were written, but the way the humanities curriculum is currently structured, I think, sometimes, it sort of does have a very hard time delineating moral rights and moral wrongs. So I'm not, I wouldn't say it's totally morally relativistic, but I do think that in a space where you know, sort of truth and sort of is, is, is challenged as a category and people are much more open to you know, seeing things as, you know, um, as simply uh, you know, personal perspectives, I do think that all of a sudden the humanities environment does somehow allow for a wide range of, to be totally frank, crazy ideas. And in that context, you get these types of crazy ideas. I mean, it's interesting, I've been following online how these professors sort of pushed back initially and then apologized. So I think their apologies are oftentimes equally as problematic as what they said originally. You know, it's, you know they're, 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 the apologies, it's hard to imagine they actually mean what they say when they apologize. I, read, I heard one professor, I think the one from Cornell, he said, I wasn't talking about the actual murder, I was just talking about this, the, the, the image of them breaking through the Gaza border. Now, again, they're obviously breaking through the Gaza border with the goal of doing horrible things. So it's like, how, how is that really an apology? But I feel like, again, some, for some reason, um, and maybe you're right in terms of the, the source of the reason, but I feel like there's something going on in the world of the humanities where... There's sort of ideas really have sort of, you know, become so acceptable that were totally unimaginable and, you know, not that long ago. And I think that that culture is really something which is problematic. Okay, I will say one thing. I think we would disagree on this, but I'll say one thing that kind of is a little bit of a movement towards direct, in your direction. I think there's a mistake sometimes people make in that they think that the kind of linear progress of science has a parallel in the world of ethics and the humanities. Because it is true in science, we have a sense that uh, uh, we're always building on the previous knowledge, and uh, we invariably like know more medically than they did 200 years ago. Um, now, even in medicine, I don't think you would have thought that uh, 800 years ago. Like, it's not so clear between Galen and Hippocrates of the Greeks and like 1600 if we made much progress. But I do think since then, science has pretty much been a story of progress. But I would agree, actually, it's a mistake to think that about philosophy and ethics. Uh, I'll give you a very simple example. Like, let's say we had a choice between Aristotle's virtue ethics and Nietzsche as an ethical source. Okay, it seems to me, despite the fact that Nietzsche is some 2,000 years later, I, I'd vote with Aristotle. I wouldn't say there's like this uh, linear sense of progress on uh, every issue in the world of ethics. I think there are certain things we could point to where the modern world has made progress. Let's say, I uh, know, fighting slavery or uh, that buildings should be uh, accessible to the handicapped. There are certain things we've gotten better at. Okay, but for sure, I, I would fight, even though, again, I'm a big believer in humanities, I would fight against the idea that there's a clear sense of linear progress. I think an honest person has to be open that some movement is uh, backwards, is a regression and not, uh, not a sense of moving to a better place. I think we have to evaluate every ideology on its own merits. Maybe we could sort of just move, uh, not necessarily directly away from the issue of the academy, but talk more broadly for a second about anti-Semitism and sort of you know, the way it's been playing out in the context of people's reactions to the tragedy. Um, again, there, there's always been different views within a normative Judaism as to to what extent should Jews be involved uh, in the outside world, and to a certain extent, to what, to what extent uh, should Jews be sort of cautiously engaging uh, with their non-Jewish neighbors. Uh, there's a well-known midrash that Rashi quotes. Admittedly, that midrash has its own history, uh, which says, Halacha biadua, Esav son Eliakov, which assumes that uh, there's some type of 
you know, halacha, some type of idea out there that sort of anti-Semitism is being symbolized by Esav is sort of part and parcel of the way the world works. And, you know, Jews constantly have to be cautious because the anti-Semitism is always lurking in the background. It just, you never know when it's just going to pop its head. Um, in fact, it's interesting, um, on that specific midrash, you know, have Rav Moshe Feinstein who says it almost explicitly that the reason why the word halacha is used, admittedly, there are some different variants here, but still the word the reason why halacha is used, is quoted by Rashi, is that Moshe Feinstein says something like, well, just like halacha is eternal and will never change, so so too is sort of the anti-Semitism that's always lurking there will always be there, right, and, uh, and will never change. So I think both you and I are generally of the opinion that, you know, we do want to sort of more broadly engage uh, the, the broader world. In fact, just ironically, the original plan for the podcast today was to be a conversation with somebody else about universalism. So, you know, there definitely is a, a strong voice uh, among us that, you know, universalism does have a strong place in Judaism. That being said, it, it's hard not to sort of feel where Ramosha Feinstein was coming from, looking at the reaction of the world to the tragedy. I mean, to give you an example, you know, on Saturday night, I was driving my son to, uh, he injured his toe, so I had to take him to what's called uh, Terem, which is like a small hospital here in Israel. And we got news about uh, the bombing in, um, the bombing of the hospital in Gaza. So it was reported immediately. We checked CNN, Fox News. Immediately, CNN and Washington Post you know, immediately presented it as an Israeli bomb. And then I was watching, I was following the reactions of, of CNN and Washington Post and all the other liberal news outlets uh, as it progressed, and it became very clear that it wasn't the Israelis. It was actually a missile uh, by Islamic Jihad. And it, it was amazing. I mean, they just couldn't admit that they were wrong, and it was not an Israeli strike. In fact, it got to the point where somebody asked... And one of the news, I think it was CNN, where someone said, why do you keep reporting this? And he said, we have no independent validation that it wasn't the Israelis, to which the person responded, but the Pentagon said it wasn't the Israelis. So I'm curious, to, you know, how do you relate to this? I mean, team, you know, it was written, I think, Barry Weiss or somebody else in the subsect said, this is literally a modern blood libel, like literally blaming the Jews for something they didn't do and simply unable to admit the facts when it comes to making sense of this. I mean, how do you conceptualize as being somebody who you know, does want to have a more trusting posture when it comes to the broader world? Okay, so I would say two points in your direction and one point in the other direction. One, I do think that we have to confront how real and ongoing anti-Semitism is, and maybe people who have more liberal voices and more universalistic uh, approaches have trouble admitting that. I think it's time to come to terms that even though we don't, can't really explain why, anti-Semitism seems to be an ongoing phenomena that is not going away. Uh, I would also say, even those of us who believe that there are times that we want to put more of our energy into universalistic causes and more other times more into particularistic causes, that given what the state of Israel has gone through, now is the time to focus our energies inward. Right? Uh, now is the time for our, our chesed projects and our financial donations to go towards... Uh, uh, Israeli victims. So I would agree with all of that. I will say that I think sometimes it's a bit overstated. I mean, even if we look at reactions to this, it's not like an undifferentiated sea of hostility. I'll give you just a little pushback here. Now, think about you know, Joe Biden's reaction. been remarkably pro-Israel, not just his opening speech, but uh, him explicitly saying that it was Islamic Jihad and not Israel that caused the bombing in the hospital. Uh, the Prime Minister of England's been supportive, so uh, I think when one looks at voices out there, it's actually a more complex story. I mean, you have professional sports teams that have uh, done pro-Israel things. Uh, you've had, uh, I saw this video recently of a musician at Carnegie Hall starting by playing Hatikva, 
right? So the outside world has always been a complicated place. There's always been serious anti-Semites. There's always been, you know, people who are philo-Semites. And there's been a big middle there that sometimes is apathetic, sometimes it could go either way. But I think it would be a mistake to, like, jump on the bandwagon and say this is, you know, Germany in 1935, right? There were no Joe Bidens in Germany in 1935. And I would even say even the college campus is a more complicated story. There's no question that it is morally outrageous what is going on at Columbia and Penn and Cornell. Okay, but I recently wrote to a wonderful Bogervas at WashU. I said, what's it like there? He said, I don't remember the exact numbers. He said, I don't know, I'll just make it up. We had 900 people at the pro-Israel rally, and there were 25 at the pro-Palestinian rally. So not every campus is dominated by, you know, uh, pro-Hamas voices. Okay, it's unfortunate that some of the uh, best colleges have those voices prominent. But I think the reaction is a much more complex story. Again, there are always anti-Semites out there, and they're still lurking. But uh, I don't think it's helpful to see every country as, you know, Nazi Germany ready to happen. I would say it's both inaccurate and unhelpful. Yeah, I think that's actually an, an important pushback because I do think you're right that obviously it's not as if, um, you know, every single university or every single um, country has been sort of acting in the same way. And obviously there has been a lot of uh, philo-Semitism, I think that's the right phrase, right? Thinking about uh, in terms of reactions to the broader world. I guess what I, what I would sort of say is that, you know, it's true that you know, obviously anti-Semitism has always been, unfortunately, part of our experience. I, I think part of the challenge, though, in terms of, you know, what, what this has brought out, really, is that it's something which, you know, has become all of a sudden um, pronounced in places which we didn't necessarily assume it would be pronounced. I mean, I know that historically the Ivy League has had a complicated relationship with Jews. Uh, there's a whole podcast talking like college by college talking about how they've related to Jews. I just think the idea basically that all of a sudden these symbolic places, in other words, Harvard is a symbol, um, Cornell is a symbol, Columbia is a symbol, you know, CNN are symbols, right? New York Times, these are symbols. It's true there are other examples, but I think the symbols being so problematic, I think makes people feel, rightfully so, just uncomfortable. In other words, you're right that Ben Sass, for example, at University of Florida wrote a very good letter. But nothing against University of Florida, but it's, not, doesn't, it's symbolically not as significant as Harvard. And therefore, I think that, you know, part of the challenge here is that some of these places that, you know, we always associated with being symbolically at best, at least neutral, or maybe even better, maybe open to, you know, a language which would, be op which would sort of be defensive when it, can't, when it comes to any discrimination, including Jews, is all of a sudden sort of like uh, turning on us. And I think that can be like a little unnerving, feeling, oh, my God, you know, what do these symbols really represent? Um, again, you're right that, for example, I read recently that 75% of Americans, you know, support Israel and their reactions, so certainly there is a lot of positive things going on here, but I think these symbols shouldn't be mitigated. I think that these are really problematic sort of uh, areas, and I think thinking through about how this is going to sort of move the conversation forward is, is something to really consider. Um, maybe we we'll just end by sort of talking a little bit about, about Zionism and sort of how this may or may not sort of change the way in which we think about Zionism. I read a really interesting piece this Shabbos by Chaim Navon, where uh, Chaim Navon, I, I'm not sure if everybody realizes this, but there's been um, a significant... Um, attempt by certain Haredim to all of a sudden volunteer for the army. I think 2,000 Haredim recently volunteered for the army, and they've been deeply involved in terms of chesed opportunities. And uh, Chaim Navon wrote a piece where he was trying to argue that the Haredim were actually right about their conception, part of their conception of Zionism. And he said basically that the religious Zionists or the secular Jews sort of live in this space where sort of we're at a new stage of history. 
right? We're not living in an era where pogroms were possible. We're not living in an area where we're defenseless. This is something different. We're at the beginning of a messianic process, something like that. And he said that basically the Haredi were always saying, no, nothing has changed. We're sort of still in the Galut, even though we're in Israel and all the non-Jews want to kill us around us. And given the opportunity, they will do it. And what he, Chaim Navon said is that, in a certain sense, the Haredi were right about that, right? That, you know, things haven't really changed. You know, the way it was articulated by Danny Gordas or maybe with Micha Goodman, for those, you know, hours where there was no army responding to the attacks in the north, that we were, you know, back in Poland. We were back in Lithuania. I mean, it was the same horrors. So in that sense, the Haredim are right. But then he said an interesting thing. He said, but because the Haredim are right, they now have to change their orientation to the state. Because he said that basically that their orientation up until now was always something to the effect of, well, you know, the army, they don't really need us. We're pretty much safe as it is. They have enough volunteers. But what we realized from this horrific attack is that manpower is at a shortage here. And we really do need more people involved. So I'm curious, just as a last uh, question, if you have any sense as a... Uh, how do you think this may, you know, force people to sort of rethink Zionism the day after? I know I've heard a lot of people talk about Israel will never be the same, won't be the same politically, won't be the same sociologically, won't be the same theologically. So I'm curious if you have any sort of last-minute uh, prophetic insights here as to what this could do for the better or for the worse to uh, Israeli society. Okay, three quick thoughts, but no prophecy, sorry. Uh, it is true. If I thought of Zionism as the antidote to anti-Semitism, it's a failure. There's no denying that. It just moved the anti-Semitism into a different plane. Uh, that being said, I would still say two things about the current situation. Uh, I don't think it's really fair to say we were back in Kishinev. We, we were back in Kishinev for about, I don't know, four to six hours. But in Kishinev, like the army didn't show up after half a day and kill all the Mechablim. Right, so it's not exactly fair to say it's all the same. It's true we were thrust back into something we'd never experience again, but think about how different it is right now, right? We did have an army that regained control. Uh, we, do, we do have an army that is now going to extract a very, very heavy price on Hamas and hopefully remove Hamas as a leadership player in Gaza, right? Uh, no one in you know, Russia was doing such a thing after the Kishinev pogrom, right? Uh, if, if you want to get a powerful expression of this, read Bialik's Be'ira Harega. It is really powerful about the powerlessness of Amish at the time. So again, anti-Semitism has not been eradicated, nor will it be, but I don't think it's fair to say we're just the same as Kishinev. I would also say, like, this is something Rev Dov and I discussed on a previous podcast, like, my religious Zionism was never all built on overcoming anti-Semitism. I think there are other reasons why it's very important to have a state, okay? Uh, some of it having to do with, like, extending uh, Jewish ideas and values to the broad reaches of society, not just being like trapped in a little shtibel. And that doesn't change because we're still subject to vicious attacks. So that would be my third thing. Maybe I'll just add one more thing. I actually do think at some point that uh, Haredim will be more involved in the army. And I think it's going to come from below and not above. I think that the leadership uh, is a little bit stuck in the old paradigm. And a lot of the rank and file, I think sometimes in these kind of moments, you kind of like, it's hard to kind of look at yourself like how could it be that all these other people are out there you know risking their lives and i'm here in the Beit midrash and even though it's a contribution to the Beit midrash but as someone once wrote yeah but everybody everybody come home comes home alive from the Beit midrash so i do see a groundswell uh how long is it i think i don't know but, but i do think create one that more integrated into the army yeah i, I mean again I, I have no prophetic uh sort of promise here either i will say just to clarify 
the claim was not that it's exactly the same, right, as life before Europe. In fact, um, Avinoam Rosenek wrote a piece this week from Corey Schoen, making your exact point that, like, obviously it can't be the same because, okay, we've responded, but I think if you freeze frame those four hours, right, I think there is, you know, some overlap. I think it's just so jarring because nobody ever imagined that it could ever happen, that we would ever have those four hours, you know, ever again in Israel. So I, I agree with, um, you know, your, your caveat there. And I would say just one other sort of possible prediction which I think would be, would be a great thing is I think that um, I mentioned at the beginning that, you know, there's been so much, um, there's been so much sort of the past year has been such a divisive year in terms of Israel. And I think my hope is, is that, you know, coming out of this, the Jewish people um, as a collective will be able to really prioritize, you know, what is important here, right? In other words, you know, whether we should be able to agree about finding a place for Mechitza in the public space, right? We should be able to not make that the central part of our dialogue, Erev Simchas Torah. And I hope that what we'll be is we'll actually be able to deal with the core issues from a place of understanding that, you know, as much as we might disagree, those disagreements are trivial in the context of a larger sort of Middle East, which is quite hostile to our presence. So I think my hope would be is that, you know, the fate versus uh, destiny model, the fate and faith, right, will sort of come back to remind the Jewish people that we do have a shared sort of fate here. And that shared fate requires compromise, requires dialogue, requires a sense that, you know, we do have to make concessions in order to live here in a holistic way. And I hope that that actually will make Israel come out of this, sort of referencing what Rav Tamir said, you know, having the conversation, which we probably should have had a lot earlier, but ultimately we're going to have to have at some point. So, Rav, thank you so much for coming on uh, the podcast today. And, uh... I hope that uh, you know over the next few weeks we're going to continue to talk uh, different angles about different issues related to the current conflict. But hopefully, uh, you know, things will you know at next podcast, next podcast you're on, things will be in a much better place in terms of Am Yisrael. Okay, I can only say amen to that. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed listening to this episode of Tzarech Iyun, please share it with others. Also, might appreciate being part of this conversation. If you haven't yet, please rate, review. And of course, don't hesitate to be in touch with any questions, comments, and topic suggestions at oraitapodcast at gmail.com. This is Tzarech Iyun, a podcast of Yeshivat Oraita.